So when we come to a retreat like this, we come to a place of uh, physical seclusion from our familiar home, friends, family, distract, uh, dis- distractions, uh, habits. And uh, while we may be physically away from our usual, comfortable, habitual, uh, the mind still has a tremendous momentum towards uh, indulging in that way, uh, to indulge in the, the talk and uh, checking, this, checking the uh, emails and uh, uh, engaging with one another in, in familiar ways. And it's not, it's, not, uh, it's not a condemnation of how we live our lives uh, when we come here to say, no, for this period of time, I'm going to put that aside. And we put it aside because there's something else to be seen, something else to be gained, something else to be experienced in life uh, that can be of value that we just don't have the opportunity for in the busyness and the familiarity of the habits of our life. And this idea of doing a retreat like this, where you you leave your home and you come to a place like this and you uh, undertake a period of time, a limited period of time, a week here, to do a very specific uh, meditation practice, mindfulness for the development of insight, uh, that has its own instruction, its own guidance, its own uh, internal uh, cohesion, so to speak. Even though there are many different uh, teachers and traditions of mindfulness and insight practice, there's a certain uh, commonality to it. And the idea of uh, just coming to a week-long or month-long or three-month retreat and doing this with a very kind of formal opening, closing, schedule, this idea only uh, originated in the West here uh, in the early 70s. And it was a direct uh, result of meditation center that was established in Burma in 1949. And uh, there was a monk that was invited to teach at this meditation center. His name was Mahasi Sayadaw. And he was one of the first in Burma to offer a limited time intensive meditation retreat for lay people, not just monastics, with a very... uh, precise instruction with a map, uh, a way of monitoring students' uh, (coughs) skill, if you will, or how well they're practicing. And prior to to that time, prior to the 
1949, if you wanted to receive these instructions, you'd have to be a monk or nun in a monastery probably for life. And you wouldn't get it in the course of a week, you'd get it in the course of 20 years, you'd get these kinds of instructions. And so we can, because retreats are so familiar to us and many of us have, many of us have done retreats for years, we, we kind of take it for granted that it's always been this way. But actually it's a quite a new uh, way of receiving the teachings of the Buddha and practicing them in an effective way to actually realize uh, what the Buddha taught. So I just want to kind of frame our being here as pretty unique, actually. Common to us, we've had it available for 40 years, but in the whole scheme of things, relatively modern. So this monk, Mahasi Sayadaw, is considered one of the grandfathers of the mindfulness or Vipassana and insight tradition here in the West because he was the teacher of and his method of practice was the method that uh, Anagarika Manindra, uh, he practiced with, at Mahasi's meditation center and Manindra taught Joseph and Sharon and the whole first generation of Western uh, Vipassana teachers. He was also the teacher of um, Sayadaw Upandita, who has had a tremendous influence on the way we practice uh, mindfulness and insight here, as well as the teacher of Deepama, the Indian woman who was so extraordinary in her uh, practice of both tranquility practice or samadhi practice, calming the mind, as well as uh, the development of insight. And so, because of his uh, teachings and the idea of a limited retreat and the map of the journey as he understood it and taught from, uh, he's had a tremendous impact on uh, practice and understanding of mindfulness and Vipassana in the West. A couple of years ago, I was traveling in Burma and I went to visit uh, where Mahasi Sayadaw's monastery was before he was invited to open this meditation center in Rangoon. And it was a little little monastery uh, near Shuibo, west of uh, Mandalay. And when I was there, I saw on the wall of the cottage where he used to live uh, his admonition uh, admonition sounds a little bit like almost scolding <laughs> but actually when I read it it didn't sound so scolding so much as encouraging and so I have uh, I want to speak tonight about that the encouraging counsel that he offers to students who come to the meditation center to practice. So I want to read it first, and then I want to comment on it, because it, it really does help if we hear what he was encouraging 
students to do and what I will be encouraging you to do, it really helps us to put aside that which is other. You know, the norm, the normal things of our life so that we can be fully here with an understanding why we're here, what we're doing here, and the value of what, what we're doing here. So I'll read it and then I'll comment on each line as I go along, or after I read it. <coughs> Do good deeds, avoid causing harm, and purify your mind. These are the teachings of all the Buddhas. It is generosity that one can rely on for one's happiness, one's wealth, and humanity. Living in harmony, too, is a real refuge in that it makes one pleasing, delightful, and free from destructive states of mind. Let there be only a few things that you attend to, a few words that you say, and a few hours that you spend sleeping love solitude, be willing to learn, and seek good friends. These are the six factors contributing to good dhammas. Continuous mindful awareness leads to insightful understanding of the causal relationship between the mind and the body, their impermanence, their unreliability, and their insubstantiality. Such wisdom leads to lasting peace. This meditation center, or here, this retreat in this center, should be a quiet place where we strengthen our faith, practice generosity, live in harmony, calm and liberate the mind. So when he says, do good deeds, avoid causing harm, purify your mind, these are the teachings of the Buddha. There's a lot being said in those two lines. And as I mentioned, the teachings, or the idea of a retreat, and the format of a retreat, to practice the meditation intensively is relatively new. The teachings of the Buddha actually are only... 2,500 years old. There's a lot of human beings that lived before the the Buddha's time and they didn't have access to these teachings. And while there's a profusion and a proliferation of Dharma teachings, Buddhist teachings, now, here in the West, uh, it won't always be so. The Buddha prophesied, and as we know of everything else that exists, things don't last. And there will be the time when the teachings of the Buddha are no longer available on the face of the earth. Well, they may be there in books, but they may not be practiced and understood or realized by by beings. And then we have a, a kind of a a library of not very useful information. But we are lucky because we have the teachings 
And we have those who have practiced, those who've realized, teaching us with confidence. I'm not claiming anything. I'm just sharing what I've heard and how I've practiced. And if it's of value to you, then use it, of course. But each one of us has some interest in the teachings of the Buddha. And many of you have been practicing for a long time. <clears throat> and even for those who've been practicing a long time, I want to ask you, have you got the full benefit of the teachings yet? So you have this week to do what you can do. That means not to just uh, rely on your past experiences or your past history or your past commitment, but to really take the opportunity when we have it now. And all of us have the discretionary time, the dis good enough health, uh, understanding, enough mental capacity to understand what's being said. And we have physical mobility, enough to get around. And that always won't be so either. And so, I just want to urge you to recognize that now is the only time you can practice, for sure. Doing good deeds means to be a benefactor rather than a burden. <clears throat> And, of course, as with all the Buddhist teachings, they've been compiled into lists and there's, well, ten things to do, ten good deeds to do. But they're not Buddhist behaviors, so to speak. They're, they're the activities of good people everywhere. To be generous, to be kind, to be respectful, to serve others, to do good deeds, to, to help, and to uh, enjoy helping, but also to, to recognize the value of others helping hand. Then there are the more Dharma-related good deeds, one of which is to listen to the Dharma. Now, we have, we have access to so much Dharma now. I don't, I don't know if you partake of it, but the, the web is just full of Dharma both audio and visual mm -hmm. stuff. It's just, it's just immense. Uh, I was talking to one of the caretakers of the Dharma Seed tape library where all of these talks and talks of most of the Vipassana teachers go. And it's just phenomenal how many hundreds of thousands of downloads a month there are of Dharma talks from people in places where the teachers don't go. And it's just um, phenomenal to think that there are people all over the world that we don't see coming to retreats that are practice, listening, practicing to the Dharma. And I'll be offering more to you, which will soon be available to them also. But we listen to the Dharma not just, to, not just for entertainment, but to hear the teachings, 
of the Dharma. And the Dharma is the truth, the way things are, the way things have come to be. And so good Dharma talks point to your experience, point to the way to understand your experience. And that's why so many of us, I think, when we hear the Dharma, or when we first read the Dharma, or first heard the Dharma, we can say, wow, I've never heard that before, but that's the way I think, or that's, the way I, that's what I've believed, or that's, that's how it is for me too, even if we've never heard it before. It's because the Dharma is pointing to the way things are. And if we've been paying attention to our life, we'll recognize the wisdom or the veracity or the truth of the Dharma. To avoid causing harm means to, of course, act, act compassionately. And while we're not probably very, we're not intentionally harm, harming others, it's more through carelessness that we harm. By you know, being disrespectful or speaking carelessly or uh, just being impatient with the nuisance of pests of one sort or another. And uh, while we may not feel that our having uh, a drink or partaking of some recreational intoxicants of one sort or another causes any harm, you don't have to look far in the world to see how much harm uh, intoxicants have, have caused. So it really is something to uh, pay attention to within our own um, life. And here we will be taking the precepts, which are uh, practices of renunciation, letting go of temporarily, training, training the mind by letting go of uh, certain behaviors, and I'll speak more about them later. And then to purify the mind, to do good deeds, avoid causing harm, purify your mind. When we talk about purifying the mind in the, in the Buddhist scheme of things, or in the Buddhist teachings, it has two, two practices, really. And the first is to purify the mind of hindrances, torments, uh, the whinging, whining, complaining, irritated, frustrated, disappointed, desires, uh, unhappy mind. And we do that through mindfulness. And that's what we'll be practicing here. But there's a second part of purifying the mind, and that is to not only just purify the mind momentarily through mindfulness, but to purify our understanding through the development of insight. And so to purify the mind is not just to practice mindfulness. Mindfulness alone is not enough. But it's to practice insight, or vipassana, in order to purify our understanding. <clears throat> Both the mindfulness, the purity of the mind through mindfulness and the purification of our understanding through insight are trainings of the Noble Eightfold Path, as you know. And then Mahasya Sayadaw goes on to say, it is generosity that we can rely on for our happiness, our wealth, in our humanity. Now, 
how do we how can we understand that? You know, the Buddha the Buddha did say, you know, if beings knew as I know the benefit of generosity, the benefit to one who is generous, they wouldn't let any opportunity go by without sharing. So you have to ask yourself, well, what, what did the Buddha know about uh, generosity? That he wouldn't let any opportunity go by if there was an opportunity to share something with another. And it's interesting, uh, I was having uh, a meal with a number of Dharma friends, oh, and, and one of my teachers, Sayadaw Tejaniya, oh, last spring. And just as we were sitting down to the meal and I was reflecting on what did the Buddha mean when he said that? Because he is actually saying it to uh, some monks or to those who were donating money, uh, donating food to monks. He said if there was a... Even if, if, even if you had just one last bite of food, if there was someone hungry or some other being there to benefit from it, don't let that opportunity go by. So I was reflecting on why is it so important to share our food? And I say food, uh, you know, food that we eat, but the, the nourishment that we thrive on are ideas, experience, uh, mentoring, uh, time, uh, as well as food. And I was reflecting on how, how many beings live in the world and die of not getting the nourishment they need. Not only food, but education, health benefits. And while we live in the States or Canada and North America and seem to have a lot of these, there are still those among us that don't have enough, let alone going to third world countries. So while it's easy for us to just take it for granted that we have enough food, we have enough resources. When we practice generosity, then we help to ensure that others also have that opportunity. And that's what makes us happy. When we can benefit others by um, making their life a little easier. You can't help but feel good. When, when you do that. And those who are generous have a sense of abundance, even if they're very poor. I go to Burma every year. Uh, I was a monk there for some time, and then I go back every year now in, in building schools. And as you know, the, the country of Burma has been ruled by some uh, military 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 men for 60, 60 years or so and the country is the people of the country are extremely poor the country's not poor the country's very wealthy but it's in very few hands and so the people are very poor but it's estimated that the people of Burma uh, offer out of generosity donate if you will uh, a quarter to a third of their meager Resources, annual resources to support monks, nuns, pagodas, temples, and things like that. And in the 
you know, the world, the UN World Survey of generosity and generous countries, Burma is either number one or number two. And these are, you know, number one or two from the bottom in <coughs> per capita income. So you have to, and, and when you go there, for those of you who've been there, Burmese people are really happy. They're happy in a kind of an undef- unexplainable way. Because, possibly because they're really generous. And they, they share a lot. And so, out of their own recognition of their common humanity with all beings, all, all other beings, they share what they have. And in this way, Mahasi Sayadaw can say it is generosity that we can rely on for our own happiness, for our own sense of abundance, and for our own recognition of our own humanity. Living in harmony, too, is a real refuge in that it makes one pleasing, delightful, and free from destructive states of mind. Living in harmony means living uh, in alignment with the precepts. They're really taking, making it a, a practice in our life to speak and act in a way that does not cause harm. And once you start practicing mindfulness, you realize how easy it is to say things that cause harm. And we've all shuddered, I'm sure, at the recognition of having just said something, or more likely now, having just sent something with a a click of the send button and wish that we'd never said it or sent it. And once it's out there, once it's been said, once it's been heard, there's no taking it back. And we, 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 we can be careless like that when we're not mindful. So what we're practicing here, what we'll be practicing here is this kind of mindfulness. And you will see in your own mind all kinds of things that you might like to say or do, which you might not think causes harm, but if you have the time to sit with it, as you will here, uh, you may realize, oh yeah, the harm is, it's not physical harm necessarily, it might be emotional harm, it might be social harm, it might be psychic harm, it might be uh, just subtle, subtle form of hurt that we impose on others. When he says that it makes that it's a refuge to live in harmony, it means that when we when we act with that kind of care and concern in our relationships, then we can. We, of course, we'll live in harmony, but it's a refuge. We feel, we can feel safe in harmonious relationships. Now, I mean, just think about you know we have a lot of different kinds of relationships: intimate relationships, professional relationships, neighborly relationships, and a lot of them don't feel like a refuge. Okay. Well, we may not be careful. Well, we may think they're not being careful. Or we don't feel safe. It's not a refuge. It's not a place of safety for us. It's not, it's not a time of being at ease and open and relaxed and allowing and sharing. We're on guard. We're tight. We're constricted, we're, we're editing, we're kind of... And so, you know, it's, it's through paying attention to 
the quality of our relationships and the non-harming nature of our relationships that's going to allow us to feel that our relationship is a refuge, a place of safety, a place of security, a place of ease for us. Now, Mahasi Sairar has got these six factors that I'm going to talk about now that he says lead to good dhammas. Now, we should understand what good dhammas are. When he says, let there be only a few things that you attend to, a few words that you say, a few hours that you spend sleeping, love solitude. Be willing to learn. Seek good friends. These are the six factors that bring good dhammas. Good dhammas mean harmony, tranquility, calmness, clarity, confidence, creativity, uh, awareness, understanding, peace, all the spiritual goodies, whatever whatever you think is a spiritual goodie, that's a good dhamma. <clears throat> so let there be only a few things that you attend to. You know how hard that is? Okay, right now now we have the opportunity. We got a week. You got nothing to do. Well, yes you do. You have to do your yogi job every day. And anything else? You got to do your yogi job every day. Yeah, that's your, your generosity. You got to brush your teeth. Well, that's if you want to be have harmony in your relationships with others. That's true. <laughs> but really, you know, when you stop and think of it, nothing to do. There's no nobody imposing their requirements, their expectations upon you for a week. It'll be interesting to see what you fill your week up with. You know, some, some I've been on retreat, you know, and, and some days, you know, you got to fill your water bottle and go for an interview. <laughs> and that gets to be a pretty busy day. <laughs> so if you can, if you can limit your activity, you, you can let the few things that you do be make your bed, you know, and do your yogi job. You'll. you'll you'll see a lot that you didn't see before. That means, you know, as was mentioned, you might have to put aside, well, we encourage you to put aside your your cell phones and your other means of uh, communications or distraction or, you know, connecting, uh, fulfilling expect others' expectation of you or obligations, whatever it is. And if you, you know, have arrived here with others having the expectation that you're going to check in with them every day, just once more. Tomorrow, you can check in with them. But let them know that they should let go of that expectation for the next six days. Okay? I see some people nodding their head, but not everyone. <laughs> but consider it. You know. so let there be a few things that you... You know, renunciation of busyness is really hard. But it's a habit. Being busy is a habit. It's, it's, it's a feeling that we have grown attached to accomplishing things, staying connected, uh, keeping busy, doing something meaningful, purposeful. It's hard to understand that doing nothing is really purposeful. But it is better to do nothing than to waste time. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> so try doing nothing. So let there be few words that you say. Of course, as I mentioned, we'll be practicing uh, noble silence here. What that means is, of course, we speak. Uh, there'll be opportunities to speak about practice. Anything that's, that supports your practice, we can say that's noble speech because it's supporting, it's clarifying your instructions, it's sharing your experience for some uh, commentary about or guidance about that. Or in the course of your yogi jobs, occasionally you need to talk to someone like, where do I put this or whatever, whatever it is you need to do. Or if you have roommates, if you're in a room of two or three people, you may need to you know, speak a little bit just to kind of who goes first and whatever. That's okay. What we're really talking about is not uh, not just uh, socially connecting, uh, you know, kind of taking care of others socially in some ways, or just kind of keeping yourself busy in that way. And in, and part of that is, you know, sometimes when we're here in retreat, you may be here with a partner or a friend, uh, and you know that. The ease with which you connect with each other is that's admirable, that's great, it's wonderful. But let me encourage you to just take a break. Just, you know, you've got the rest of your life after the retreat to share everything that happened on this retreat. But give yourself the opportunity to really be alone with your own experience and to really come to know your own experience and to understand your own experience. Uh, and we can only do that if we're really paying that kind of attention to our own stuff and not just sharing it or dumping it or getting somebody else's opinion on it, but really to come to know that for ourselves. And sometimes, you know, people express their emotions and retreat. Sometimes people cry. Sometimes people are really sad. And you may see, you may hear someone crying, you may see someone really sad, you may, uh, whatever it is, let them, let them be with their, let them be with themselves. It's not being unkind or uncompassionate to, to let them be with it, be with their own process, to, to go through it, to learn from it what they will. Uh, sometimes we feel uncomfortable with others' distress. But in a sister situation, it's, it's okay. If you see someone that's in trouble, choking or in a dangerous situation, of course, do everything you need, everything you can to relieve the distress or get them to safety or whatever it is they need. But uh, be, be, be careful about that. So let there be a few things that you tend to, a few words that you say... And a few hours that you spend sleeping. A few is more than a couple and less than enough. <laughs> so, I went to the monastery in Burma. I went to the Mahasi Center where this was the admonition. And uh, my teacher, Saito Bandita, he says, well, here's the, here's the schedule. You know, you wake up at 3 and you sit and walk alternate hours, you have a couple of meals during the day and you go to bed at 11. He says, you can sleep all you want. Between 11 and 3. 
but we're not we're not following that regimen. But I would ask you to really be sincere in your commitment to practice here, and if you are awake, to be practicing. Now that means you know when you wake up, if it's not just the pee, uh, when you wake up, get up. It may be before the bell. But when you're tired, then go to sleep. You know, when we're working, when we're busy in our social life, in our professional lives, in our family lives, you know, we may we may understand we need eight hours, ten hours, whatever it is. We may understand that that's necessary for us to maintain our activity level and clarity and whatever it is. But here it's different. You really don't have much to expend your energy on, other than just watching your own mind, which is which takes a lot of energy, actually. Uh, but I encourage you to be sincere in not using sleep as indulgence and comfort, or as a way of avoiding dealing with what's coming up, whether it's physical or mental discomfort, emotional discomfort. Sometimes we use sleep as an anesthetic. So, just understand that uh, there's sleep for resting the body and mind, and there's sleep for avoiding <coughs> avoiding dealing with what's coming up. So, recognize the difference. Love solitude. Now, here we are. 50 people living in a small little area, and you might think, solitude, what's he talking about? But actually, solitude is a quality of mind. It's being, being able to be with your own mind, being solitary, being alone. Being, it's not being lonely, it's not being isolated from, it's not being cut off from, but it's, it's having the courage to be at, e- be at home in your own mind, alone with your own mind not needing a companion and not needing to share and not needing to get into somebody else's mind. And this solitude is really um, quite essential. Yeah, it's, it's really essential to really practice the solitude that will allow you to really get intimate with your own mental, physical, emotional processes. And you'll see how much or when you want to write a note or you want to check your email or you want to talk to somebody or whatever it is. Watch the level of discomfort that arises that urges you to connect in some ways with others. Because it's it's often out of feeling some level of discomfort that we want to talk. We We want to get away from it. And so we connect. We write a note or we read, read something uh, just to kind of, well, avoid that, that discomfort. There's a lot to be discovered in what keeps you from, I want to say, enjoying solitude of your own, your own experience. So take a look at that. One time I was 
went to a monastery in Thailand to practice, and it was out in the, out in the forest uh, near Cambodia, and it was a hundred-acre forest, and there was only two other monks there, and they spoke Thai with no English, and I didn't speak any Thai. And it was three months of just being with the critters of the jungle. It was, it was challenging. It was challenging. When I got sick, it got really challenging. How do I, how do I tell somebody that I need some medicine or something? But nevertheless, it took a while to get comfortable with just being alone day after day after day in the forest. And we have the opportunity here. You're not, you're not alone in a dangerous way, but you can be alone in your heart, alone in your own experience, and to really see what it's like to let go of your obligations to others and uh, meeting others' expectations of you and just to really come to know your own mind. And then be willing to learn. The word that was on, on the admonition was to be docile. And I always thought to be docile was like a cow, you know, just kind of standing at the fence, chewing your cud, but, or being so domesticated that you got, you know, you just kind of routine habit. But that's not what docile means at all. But, you know, the word docile, you feel kind of dull. But actually, docile means being willing to learn, being willing to receive teachings, be willing to have someone point out to you, you know, what you're doing is a little bit and you might be able to improve it if you you might do a little better if you did this or you know you might check your commitment here and that's being willing to be taught I say being willing to learn being willing to learn sounds so me being willing to be taught it's like that's different isn't it so really it means to be willing to be taught Uh, now many of you have experience in both practicing with me or practicing with other um, maybe mindfulness teachers or Buddhist teachers or teachers from other spiritual traditions. And you know, and many of us have done lots of different things over the years. And that's great. That's fine. There's benefit from most anything. And there's techniques and teachings that are of value. But for... This week, I would ask you to listen to what I'm saying. You know, try to try to hear what I'm saying and try to practice it, so you can know for yourself how this practice is for you. That's not to say that anything you've done before is wrong or bad or not useful or unskillful. Not at all. That's fine. Everything, all practices have their strengths and their limitations, and so it's good to know what they are. And this may be for you just another, another practice, but that has some value. So try it, check it out. So being willing to learn means to be willing to admit, you know, your own mistakes. You know, sometimes we think mistakes are, are wrong or bad, but actually when we can see that we've been practicing wrongly and that it was a mistake to do it that way, to acknowledge that is wisdom. So we could say that 
recognizing mistakes is the path to wisdom. If you never recognize that you made any mistakes, you're not going to get very wise. You keep doing the same old thing over and over again. But if you see, oh, this didn't work, or this, this is not an effective way of practicing, and only we can, only we can know that for ourselves. I can't tell you that this is wrong or whatever. But when you see that your practice is not benefiting from what you're doing, then it's up to you to hear, to see that, to recognize that. I'm not going to scold you. I'm not going to go... You know, the teachings, as, as, as I was told, I'll tell you, the Buddha solved his problem. Suffering. And he offered us the teachings. He can't solve our problems. The teachings can, if we apply them. So, I'll offer you the teachings that I've heard most from the, from the, from the Buddhist teachings, or at least influenced by it. But it's up to you, really. And so, it's really important you know, to recognize, oh, this isn't effective, or this is not quite right, or this isn't working. I don't mean it isn't working like it's not effective. It's like, this is, you know, I'm, I'm using this in an unskillful way, this particular schedule, or this particular technique, or this particular practice. And you'll see, you'll, you'll, re- you'll recognize when you're really not, not being sincere with your own efforts. And to be able to acknowledge that is really important. That's a sign of wisdom. So then he, said, he says, love solitude, and then later he says, seek good friends. Now, is this kind of counterintuitive or what? Well, not really. It's not contradictory to love solitude and seek good friends because it's good friends, good spiritual friends, that really ask us or support us in our goodness. Good spiritual friends, they encourage us. They draw out the best in us. They, they, they influence our aspirations. They encourage us by their own behavior and their own practice. So good friends are those that you care how they think about you. You know, who's your sangha? Who, 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 who's your sangha? It's spiritual sangha. It's those who you care how they think about you. Because they're the ones that are going to you know, their relationship with you is going to, you may feel shame or guilt or, uh, you know, that you're competitive or, you know, not, not stepping up to your own best interest, really, or not living, to your own, living up to your own potential. Not because they're pointing it out or criticizing you, but you see it in yourself. And this is a do-it-yourself job. This, this whole practice of insight is really coming to understand your own mind how it is for you, you know, and you can't find that in a book. It's not in a book. You know, your book is your heart, your experience, and only you can read that book. Nobody else can read that. So to seek good friends is to um, to understand who whose advice do you consider valuable, whose instruction, whose guidance, whose behavior, whose way of life, really, is something that you want to emulate. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to be, you know, just kind of a fair-weather friend or just a kind of a social companion, because 
you know, when I think about my teacher, Shayadar Upandita, that I practice with in, in, uh, in the monastery, he was pretty demanding, just by his expectations. You know, just by his, his commitment to the Dharma was just what he expected of others. Uh, and it was re- really demanding. He just has a way of really getting you to work very, very diligently. But not, not unskillfully or not in a way that causes suffering. But it's because of his understanding. He understands the mind. He's guided a lot, thousands, hundreds, tens, tens or hundreds of thousands of people in practice. He understands the mind. And he knows that, you know, there's, there's suffering in our mind. There are the causes and the conditions for suffering in our mind. And he encourages us to practice to discover those causes and conditions. And so you suffer. But when you're suffering, when you, when you recognize that you're suffering, then you'll do something about it. So it's not, it's not wrong in practice to recognize that you're suffering. Because when you, when you suffer with full awareness, then you'll do something about it. You'll practice in a way that will, will change your understanding. And so just because you're suffering doesn't mean that you're practicing wrongly. Or just because something I say kind of irritates you. That doesn't mean that that's not good for you. Because sometimes, you know, the Dharma is hard to hear. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not common knowledge. It's pretty subtle and pretty refined, actually. And so sometimes we'll hear it and we'll think, that's counterintuitive, or I don't agree with that, or no way, or something. And... Uh, but if it, came, if it comes from the Buddha or from the Buddha's teachings or uh, through practicing as the Buddha taught, then it's something to, at least to pay attention to. And even if it's not comfortable for us, to at least take a look at it and see what's going on there. So it's these six characteristics or qualities or behaviors that lead to awareness, understanding, and other good dhammas. Then Mahasi Sayadaw goes on to speak about the development of mindfulness and understanding, the understanding of insight and the realization of Nibbana. When he says, continuous mindful awareness leads to insightful understanding. Now, it's the continuity. Mindfulness, not so, not so difficult. The continuity of it, very difficult. And so, I want to, I want to drop this seed into your, into your mind at this point. Continuity is from the time you wake up to the time you fall asleep. And whatever you do in the intervening time, sitting, walking, eating, bathing, toilet, yogi job, reading the schedule, whatever it is you do, that's the object of your awareness. 
you don't have to struggle, you don't have to strive, you don't have to grit your teeth, you don't have to kind of squeeze your mind at all. You can stay totally relaxed in the body, totally relaxed in the mind, but just be continu as continuous as possible. You don't have to hurry. Each moment will appear at its own time. You don't have to hurry to get to the next one. So it's, can you relax? Are you, can you just be willing to acknowledge the present moment's experience? As boring, as ordinary, as routine, as mundane as it often is, it's that continuity. That continuity is what develops insightful understanding. And so much, as you know, I mean, like I said, we're not going to do anything here. You know, we're going to, we're going to get up, we're going to sit and walk, we're going to go to the toilet, we're going to bathe, we're going to eat, we're going to listen to a talk. That's it. Day after day, same thing. Boring. Nothing to look forward to. Nothing new, nothing exciting. It's just same old, same old. But that's the way life is, isn't it? You know, did you ever think how many hours you spent brushing your teeth in this life? I mean, hundreds and hundreds of hours, you know, probably months and months of time just spent brushing your teeth. And you know what? It's not over yet. <laughs> Going to the toilet, probably even longer. You know? And we think, right, I got I to quick brush my teeth so I can get to being, get to the meditation. I got to quick get out of the toilet or get through my shower, get through my yogi job, got to hurry through my yogi job so I can get to do something else more mindfully. Doesn't make sense, does it? Silly. Silly. There's nothing to hurry for. You know, take your good old time. Just, well, I don't know about the showers. There may be limited time in the shower, but other than that, take your time. There's nothing to hurry. There's nothing to get. There's no new experience going to happen except more awareness. Continuous mindful awareness, that's what we're working on, leads to insightful understanding of the causal relationship between the mind and the body. The mind and the body are talking to each other all the time. And, part, and a large part of our, our practice is to notice the relationship between the mind and the body. The body's feeling like this, the mind goes yada, 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 or the mind is chattering away with some ideas, plans, whatever, and the body's feeling what it's feeling. And just to watch that conversation, that dialogue between the body and the mind all day long, is fascinating, if you can get into it. And it reveals the causal relationship. The body doesn't move without the mind. The mind is often influenced by the body. But what we see as we observe this causal connection between the mind and body is nothing lasts for long. Nothing lasts for long. Things are fleeting. Just going by like... But it's not that we have to think about how impermanent things are. We see it. We live it. We live in that, that place of just noticing that things come, things go. Continually. Physical, mental, emotional, environmental. There's no end to it. And they're not stable. You know, you can't rely on it. Yeah. You know, uh, now that you're here, you know, we all are looking for a good experience. You know, we don't come to we don't come to retreats thinking, oh boy, this is going to be miserable. 
just kind of painful, physical, mental, emotional distress the whole whole week. Great, I'm glad I'm here. Most of we come saying, "Hey, I kind of calm down, open up, get get aware, you know, find some compassion, and just it's going to be nice. It's kind of maybe a little joy, a little bliss. That'd be great. Okay, you know, there's nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day." Because as soon as you have a good sitting, you expect it to be there the next time you come sit. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> you get one a day. <laughs> That's what, in, the, in the monastery, when I was in the monastery in Burma, we used to, I, I always had the understanding, somewhere today is going to be the best part of the day. The best part of the day. And the question always was, was that the best sitting of the day? <laughs> you know, was that the best experience of the day? And you never know until the day's over. But when you say best, I mean, that, what, what I was looking for was pleasant. That's not necessarily the best. but And we see these three characteristics, that they're impermanent, that they're un, unstable, they're unreliable, and they come due to their own causes and conditions. We don't make them happen. We can't make them stop happening. It's like if we could if we could control the body and the mind, we'd say, "Be happy, be pleasant." Doesn't happen. Get over it. I mean, or, or deal with it. And that's what we do. We have to is to learn that we don't control it. Or as, as one of my other teachers, Sayadaw Tejaniya, he says, uh, "The mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it." Meaning, what comes into the mind? You know, it just arises just like that, doesn't it? You can get irritated in a split second. You, you can have thoughts that you'd rather not have and they just torment you. You know, over and over and over. We get obsessed with things that we are useless. We make plans for futures we'll never live. Right? Stuff comes into our mind from the memories from the, pla- from the past that we'd rather forget. Can't stop it. The mind is not yours. It's got its own. It's got its own project going on. But once anything arises in your mind, you got to deal with it, or it'll drive you crazy, or it'll make you miserable. You'll get depressed, or you'll get whatever if you don't take care of it. So when you see this about the mind and the body, you tell the body to be comfortable. We always do. We come in, sit down, pray. May the body be comfortable with sitting. It has its own agenda, doesn't it? You know, you can't you can't control it. And so when we see, when we when we learn to live with these truths about the body and the mind, it's not it's, we all we all can but we all know that things change. We all know that things change. You all know that what I was just talking about the mind and the body is true. But we don't live with it. We don't live from that understanding. Practicing here is learning how to live from these understandings. This is the way it is. And we have to see it over and over and over again. This is the way it is in the body. This is the way it is in the mind. Finally, we'll get it. Stop struggling. Because, as Mahasthi Sayadaw acknowledges, such wisdom leads to lasting peace. Peace is the characteristic of Nibbana. 
Nibbana is the end of suffering. The end of suffering is stop struggling. Stop wanting what you don't have. Stop trying to get rid of what you do have. Except this is the way it is now. Okay? No, it's not okay. <laughs> I know. We want what we want, we don't want what we don't want. But he wraps up his admonition by saying, this meditation center should be a quiet place. We can do that. We can do it. Okay? A quiet place where we strengthen our faith, meaning we practice with confidence, and if we do, at the end of the at the end of a week, we'll feel more sure about our practice. That's all. Where we can practice generosity, we'll all be practicing generosity by doing our yogi job, by being respectful of practice here, and some some of us will offer meal dana and, and other things like that. Uh, as a way of just sharing our being here, sharing our interest, sharing our sincerity, sharing our aspirations, and, and the way we practice with each other. It's a great, it's great to practice together like this, because just seeing other people practicing can be inspiring. You know, of course, seeing other people goofing off and not not practicing can be kind of undermining. Okay, and to live in harmony. You know, think about it. Fifty people here for a week. For the most part, it won't be anything like the debate last night or Tuesday night. It won't be any of that. It'll be mostly, mostly harmonious. We might have some thoughts about some of you, some of you, having thoughts about others, but you know, don't act on them. <laughs> and. This is where we can calm the mind and free the mind through practice of mindfulness and, and, and insight. So I want to encourage you to make the best use of your time here and to take this admonition to heart and to really uh, make good use of your time. If you can learn to do nothing... That would be really beneficial. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.